scripture reading this morning will be from Ezekiel chapter 47.
We've seen false prophets. We've seen false shepherds. We've seen the presence of the Lord in a special way coming into the temple. But now we see a river. A river. And when we think about water in Scripture, water is a very significant thing in Scripture, as it was a very significant thing in Palestine, right? We know that even today yet. One of the big conflicts in the Golan Heights today yet is, is the water supply that it, it offers to Palestine. The water is scarce there and very precious. But in Scripture, you find that water has water goes both ways. Sometimes it's a sign of something negative, something very ominous, foreboding, sinister. And uh, you can see this actually in Revelation 20. Revelation 21, verse 1. Uh, and perhaps you wondered about those words. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. No longer any sea. S-E-A. Because the sea was something ominous. You never knew what was lurking beneath the surface of those waters. It was something sinister. It, 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 it was unknown. It was a, it was a bad thing. And in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no sea in that sense. And then just one chapter later, chapter 22, verse 1, we see it completely different. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the land. Now you see the flood now, don't you? Now it's a beautiful thing. Water is a health, a life-giving thing. It's clear as crystal. It's lovely. It's refreshing. It's a picture of life. So water in Scripture can go both ways. Well, in, in, uh, in, you can think too about well, creation, right? In the time of creation, all the plants have been created, but they weren't growing, right? They weren't germinating. They weren't dropping their seed. But then on the, in chapter 2 of Genesis, the mist begins to descend from off the ground, right? And immediately those plants begin to grow, right? And it sets in motion the whole process of uh, germination and so on. So a life-giving water. Now, as you can imagine here, in this chapter, when we consider water in this river, we're not going to be thinking about a literal river anymore, right? That's not how we understand these prophecies. Not an actual river flowing from this temple. But this is a picture of all the blessings of the new covenant that God will bring through His Son, Jesus Christ, when He comes the first time. And ultimately, when He comes the second time. Now, I'll have more to say about that. But let's zero in then on this river, as we have it here in this chapter. So if you would take your Bible and turn to Ezekiel chapter 47, and you'll follow me here. And the first thing that I'd like to draw your attention to, then, if you took a copy of the notes today, I gave you a picture. I don't know how to do that, but today I decided to give you a picture uh, to help you understand that. And you see that on the back side of your notes there, and I have to say, congregation, in the first place, that it's a bit dangerous for me to give you this picture, because you must not think that Ezekiel's temple was something that was to be built. And that may sound strange, but Ezekiel's temple was not something meant to be built. In fact, in one sense, I can even say they really weren't even meant to draw a picture of it. Because it stands for something spiritual. Again, the whole temple is, is, is God's symbol of all the new covenant blessings that are going to come down upon His people in the last days. Jesus' first coming and to Jesus' second coming. Nevertheless, a picture it is. And so a picture, uh, I can make this picture, I found this picture, and it is, it's helpful for us, but I do want to make that proviso, that qualification today, that right, it, it's, it's not a literal temple of which we're speaking. The temple is a symbol 
something much greater and something uh, far superior than an actual temple of brick and stone. But at any rate, you see this temple here. And if you look at, uh, if you keep one eye on Ezekiel 47, it says, Then he brought me back to the door of the house. Now previously, uh, they were in the outer court in chapter 46, looking at the different kitchens. So if you look in the corners of, of the outer wall there, right, in the northwest, south, and east corner, you see the priest's kitchen. See that label there? That's where the prophet is coming from. But then, the man who's giving Ezekiel this tour takes him from those kitchens and takes him to the inner court. So you see the inner court there and the altar in the center of that court right before the temple itself. So there they're standing. And there it is that Ezekiel looks. Hey, and he notices. Right? There's water. There's water coming out from, the, from beneath the temple door there. And he sees it. And it's just a tiny trickle. But he sees water coming from under the threshold. The threshold would be the door, right? It's flowing out from underneath the door. Now the temple faced east, the tabernacle, Solomon's temple, and Herod's temple. They all face east. All the temples face east. But here comes the water, right? And, and he doesn't see what's happening inside the temple. But he sees that that water is flowing out the threshold of the door toward the east. And it was coming from inside that house. And it flowed to the south of the altar. And again, if you look at that diagram, it pictures that for you. That water is coming out from the temple, which is facing east, but then it goes to the, what do I say, to the right side of the altar, which is the south side. And then uh, the man who's leading Ezekiel in verse 2 says, He brought me out by the way of the north gate. So you can see then they would cross past the altar. They would go out that the inner court, the northern gateway. See that there? And then they turn right. They come around to the front. And there it is again. There's that water flowing towards the east. Past the altar. It's even going down through the outer court. And it's going to flow out. Past that eastern gateway of the outer court. So in the first place then, we want to notice the source. The source of this water. And that's important. It's coming from within the temple. And the temple congregation is God's dwelling place. Now we don't think of it that way in our, in our time, in our dispensation. We don't think of God as dwelling in church. Right? And that's appropriate. The New Testament says something else. But in the Old Testament times, the temple was the place where God's name dwelt. God had placed His name there. And He dwelt between the cherubim on the Holy of Holies. And from the, the, the dwelling place of God flows this water. And it flows toward the east. So let's look then next at its progress. Notice, notice congregation, that this water doesn't necessarily just flow downhill as, as we would expect. Now this actually flowing downhill if you know the geography of that place. But it's not just flowing downhill because that's what water does, right? Finds the lowest place. No, this is water with a purpose, you might say. This is water that is flowing into a certain place. It's, it's aiming for something. And, and, and you'll see that, that this, that this water is flowing towards the east. And if you go out of the temple door and you go east and try to follow me here, if you think about the geography, what are you going to hit first? You're going to come to the Jordan River, right? 
The Jordan River Valley is there. And if you continue down the Jordan River Valley to the south, you're going to come to the Dead Sea. But the river's not flowing in that direction because that's the lowest. It's flowing in that area because that's the dense. You can see that in verse 8. These waters go out toward the eastern region and go down into the Arabah. That is the, uh, the, the, the Jordan River Valley, the Dead Sea area. Then they go toward the sea. And the sea means the Dead Sea being made to flow into the sea and the waters of the sea become fresh. So this is, this is a river with a purpose. It comes out of the temple. It flows towards this, this, this Dead Sea. This, this dead area, this desolate region. I've never been there. Maybe some of you have. But I've told there's not a green thing in sight for, uh, by the Dead Sea because it's so salty. Now the Jordan River Valley has much the green trees and such. That's fresh water yet. But down in the Dead Sea where all that collects is dead and buried. In fact, uh, I'm told that the fish swimming down the Jordan River, when, when they get to the Dead Sea, they die. They can't survive in that water. So that's the river's progress. It's flowing to the dense area. Now the river's effect in the third place. The river's effect. Now, this is, this is, this is a, a matter of, of shock and surprise. And as I was working through these verses this week, if I was paraphrasing this, which by the way is a wonderful thing to do as you try to work your way through the Bible, try to paraphrase these things, try to put it in your own words. But it says, notice that uh, the water starts out as a trickle in verse 2, but then as he, he went a thousand cubits, it goes to his ankles. How did that happen, congregation? How did that happen that that little trickle of water became ankle deep? We don't read of any tributary streams coming into it. That's what we'd expect, eh? Boys, when you, when you have water, if the, if the river's going to get deeper, you expect other streams to be going into it. But then we don't read anything about that. We read of a trickle of water coming out of the temple, and it's just a trickle. Or you can stop it with your hand. But what happened after a thousand cubits that now it's an ankle deep? It's a stream. And after another thousand cubits, he says it reaches his waist. Or the knees. Sorry, verse 4, it reaches his knees. And after another thousand cubits, it reaches his loins or his waist. And pretty soon the river is so deep, he cannot even cross it. The only way to cross it would be to swim across it. How did this river go from being a trickle to such a, 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 a wide stream? No longer can you call it a stream, you have to call it a river. The only way you can get across it is swimming. How did this happen? And you can imagine Ezekiel here, right? As the as the uh, as he as he as he proceeds a thousand cubits, and then another thousand cubits, he's surprised. He's shocked. He, he looks at this water. How's this happening? This is this is something astounding to him. That this river gets wider and bigger and deeper. But we read more about the effect. More about the effect of this river. And the first thing that we can read about is the trees. And I see that in verse 7. Now when I had returned, behold, on the bank of the river, there were very many trees on the one side and on the other. Now here, congregation, again, you can see how this isn't meant to be understood literally. Like trees don't just pop up. It's right. Trees take years and years to grow. And then again, the, the prophet is painting a picture for us, right, of what's going to come in the latter days. 
So here are all these trees in a, in a region where you would not expect to find trees. And on both sides of the river. But then you can read on to see what it does to the Dead Sea. Because in verse 8, we read that as this river goes along, it comes into the Arabah. That's that desolate region around the Dead Sea. They go toward the sea, being made to flow into the sea. And the waters of the sea become fresh. That's why this is a healing river. Because when that fresh water comes to the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea is transformed. Now again, that's not that we scientifically know that it would mix together. Maybe the Dead Sea would become a little less salty, but it's still going to be salty, but not in this case. This is miraculous propagation. In this case, when that water reaches the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea is touched and healed by these waters. It becomes fresh water. The Dead Sea is made fresh. And then in verses 9 and 10, you read the effect of what of when the Dead Sea is made fresh. Verse 9 will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. I think that interesting that it doesn't say that in all the creatures that swim in the water, uh, when they swim in this water, they will live. It's close. But what it says here is that all these swarming creatures, wherever the river goes, they are brought to life. They are, as it were, enlightened and empowered. Again, whatever this river touches, it heals and makes alive. It heals the Dead Sea to fresh water. These swarming creatures are given a, a, a fresh, beautiful, wonderful place to live. And there will be very many fish, not just a few, very many fish, for these waters go there, and the others become fresh. And again, I, I want you to see congregation because the wording here is very precise. Notice it says, for these waters go there. Here's everything, dead, desolate, barren. Here comes the water. And as soon as it touches, it's healed. Right? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't say in congregation that these, these, these creatures were... Um, these creatures were all right there, living, and then the water came over many years, they, you know, became many known. The water comes, and it just, you can see it, just as it goes, trees spring up, beautiful green shrubbery. Animals begin to fill these waters as it goes along. And the water gets deeper, not shallower. And verse 10, commerce, there's fishermen, there's so many fish in these waters that fishermen come. And from Engedi to Engelayim, they set up their nets. Now, you know, the last place you would go to set up nets in, in Palestine is the Dead Sea. There's no fish in there. But there's lots of fish in it now. Their fish will be, according to their kinds, many different kinds of fish, species of fish, like the fish of the Great Sea. Now, the Great Sea is the Mediterranean Sea. Very many. So you see the effect of this. But notice in congregation in verse 11 that not everything is made alive. The river bypasses some portions in verse 11, but its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. In other words, these, these areas are left as dead. The water doesn't go there. The water flows past them. If the water had flowed over those areas, they would have been made alive too. But for these areas, the water flows past them. And the marshes and the swamps 
safe in their dead, barren, and desolate condition. Well, one more thing to say about this, and that is I need to go back to the truth. Because in verse 12, you'll notice that it says, these are very unique kind of trees. Their leaves will not wither. Their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month. In other words, they'll have a harvest every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. I, again, I, I, maybe I'm beating, beating this too much. Uh, you can't beat this too much. It's the river congregation that makes these things alive. They will bear every month. Why? Because they're a special kind of tree, because the farmer takes such good care of them. No, no, no. Because the water flows from the sanctuary. And those trees drink from that water. And their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Even the leaves of these trees have healing properties. Well, congregation, what does all this mean? In the fourth place, the rivers of meaning. Well, as I said in the beginning, this represents, congregation, all the blessings of the new covenant that God will pour out on his church from the beginning of Christ's ministry, from his birth, his first coming, to his second coming. All the blessings of the new covenant are compared to that little trickle. And what a little trickle it is, congregation, when on Christmas morning, the Christ child is laid in the future. It's just a trickle. It seems so, almost nothing. What could possibly come of this baby laying in this, in this filthy manger in Bethlehem? It's just a trickle. But it gets wider. It's ankle deep. When Christ begins to step out onto the fields of Palestine and he begins to heal, he begins to preach the kingdom of God is here. Repent ye and believe the gospel. It gets even more congregation when Christ dies on the cross and when he rises from the dead, it becomes waist deep. Now I'm not saying, congregation, that the, my, my interpretation of each of these steps is, is necessarily biblical. But I'm giving you the, the sense of this, how the kingdom of God grows and it gets deeper. And then on the day of Pentecost, when Christ poured out His Spirit upon flesh, the river became so deep that you could just swim in it. You couldn't even wade across anymore. You couldn't touch. Those waters were so deep. And that's why in a special way, these waters represent the work of the Holy Spirit as He is poured out upon God's church in the New Covenant times. That's really what is represented by this river. It began when Christ was born at His first coming. At Pentecost, it was, it was given in such a visible, powerful way. And it will not be complete, congregation, until Christ comes again in the second time of glory. In that sense, that river will have purged away everything sinful, everything that defiles, every salt, every desolate, dead, barren region will be made alive. Nothing will be left of That's the meaning then of this river. And can't you just think, if you put yourself in Ezekiel's shoes, you know, we sang this morning, far from the courts of God, my tears have been my food by night and day, while constantly with bitter sneers, where's thy God? The scoffers say, where's thy God? The scoffers say. This was Ezekiel's experience in the land of Babylon. He's living in exile. He's so far from the temple. He's so far from the appointed means of grace that God has set out for his people. 
And he cries out, far from the courts of God. My tears have been my food. That certainly would have been his experience, congregation, in exile. And what a blessing then to receive from God this vision. Ezekiel, let me show you what I'm going to do in the latter days. In the last days, I'm going to have a river flow out of the temple of God that is going to sweep everything before it. Not in a way of judgment, but in a way of healing. Can you imagine, congregation, hearing that report? I think he must have wept for joy when he understood what God was going to do, what God was promising here. You know, it was enough that God just built that temple. God said, this is the temple that I'm going to construct in the latter days. But not just the temple. It's a temple where the Spirit of God and the glory cloud is going to come. Remember we saw that from Ezekiel 43 some weeks ago. But it's a temple also where the water, the river, is going to flow out of that temple to the deadest areas of the world and make them live again. Oh, that must have been unbelievable for Ezekiel and for the other captives sitting by the Kabar How God encourages his people. How God dries their tears and gives them faith in a future. Hope for a future. That's such a precious thing in our mind. Well, let me move then to make some some points of application on this. The very first point of application is a, is a theological one. And that is this picture that God gives us here in Ezekiel teaches us about the work of the Holy Spirit. What is the work of the Holy Spirit in congregation? What does He do? Whenever in Scripture you read about the Holy Spirit, you read about power. And that really is, is, a, is a connection I'd like you to make. When you think of the Holy Spirit, you should think about power. Because look what happens in this picture. The Holy Spirit comes in the picture of this river flowing. And what happens? Power. Because all along the way there's new life. Trees spring up. Fish begin to swim. Fishermen become busy. There's new life. And throughout the Bible congregation, this is what the Spirit of God does. He brings life. He brings power. We sang that also. Did you notice that? We sang, Your Spirit, O Lord, makes life to abound. The earth is renewed and fruitful the ground. To God be all glory and wisdom and might. May God and His creatures forever delight. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. He gives power. He gives new life. And that is the work that we see in this picture here of this river flowing into the dead regions. A congregation, I appeal to your own experience as a child of God this morning. That your heart also was dead. It was barren. There was no life there. The Apostle Paul represents the human heart as dead in sins and trespasses. Until, until that day that the Spirit of God came as that river of life and took your dead heart and made it alive. He broke that hard heart. He made your heart to see its deadness, to see its sin and guilt. And He brought your heart to see the healing grace of Jesus Christ. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the work of the Spirit, congregation. It's a secret work. It's a mysterious work. It often, 
that often is busy in us without us even knowing it. But it certainly makes itself manifest, doesn't it? And perhaps you've seen that, I hope you've seen that in a measure of your own life. But especially we see a congregation in the lives of people who grew up in sin. And of course, I know we all grow up in sin, but I think you know what I mean, open, open sin. And I can't help but think of that guy, you know, I've heard that story so many times already, but that, uh, remember the man who was flying the head plane to Pearl Harbor? Remember that? It's Mr. Fujita, the Japanese pilot. And then the man, Jacob Shazer, who was the pilot flying the two little rig that dropped the bombs on Tokyo in revenge for the Pearl Harbor attack. And what did the river of life do for them, congregation? I told you the story. It was in the Chronicle last time. There in Japan, those two men met. And can you believe they bowed before the Lord Jesus Christ and thanked Him for what He had done in their life? Both of those men came to faith in Christ. And the rebellion, the hate, the revenge was taken away. Those salty legions were touched and healed by the water of God's grace and by the water of God's Spirit. Isn't that a miracle? That is a miracle, congregation. It's a miracle in our life when it happened maybe without quite as much of a, of a dramatic effect. But that's powerful, isn't it? That's powerful. I remember I, I, I was talking to a man, and now I was talking to him, and I wrote letters to a man in prison who was fully determined to kill himself. His life had reached such a misery that he preferred death to life. And he was such a wicked man that he said, I'm going to take hours with me. I'm not just going to die alone. So he picked out the man who was going to kill he picked up the man he was going to kill. He laid his plans. He got his weapon. And the day, congregation, the day that he was going to carry out his plan, just a religious tract, nothing more, just a religious tract, happened into his hands. And he read it. And it was the river of life for him. It healed him. It touched his heart and his mind. Took away his hate. All his plans, his well-laid plans to murder this other man and to kill himself or dispense with and the man now preaches the gospel in prison. And you know, congregation, you can multiply stories like that a hundred times. What a beautiful thing it is, the Spirit of God, when He does this work of making alive. Congregation, in the second place, I move to the source of this blessing. I can be very brief here because it all comes from the temple of God. It all comes from the temple of God. No other streams fed this river. Ezekiel didn't need to build channels. He didn't need to dig this or to run a pipe to that. No, it all came from the temple. In congregation, when God works in our life, it's a one-sided work of free and sovereign grace. It all comes from God. Just as all this water came from the temple, we confess that and we rejoice in that because congregation, if that weren't the case, then we were all hopelessly lost. There was a man in the Netherlands, uh, I don't know his name, but he, he uh, I believe it was uh, Pastor DeCook went to visit him and they were talking back and forth and this man said to Pastor, Pastor, he said, if I had to add one side one side to my salvation, I would be lost forever. 
You understand the meaning of the congregation? That this man said, if God said, I'll save you, I'll, I'll do all, I'll do everything, but you just have to add one side to it. Just, have, just one side. And then I'll save you. And this man who had been taught by God, well taught by God, said if I had to add just that much to my salvation, I'd be lost forever. Well, that old man taught Pastor DeCook. Pastor DeCook was just a young man just graduated from a little seminary in the Netherlands before the uh, secession happened in 1834. And, and, and Pastor DeCook came to realize that God had taught that man something that he had not learned himself. It all flows from the temple. I move to the third point of application. Congregation, I point out to you again in verse 11 that it was not everything that was made alive by this river. It was not all the land that was made alive. There were marshes and swamps that were left for salt. Now in one sense, congregation, you can look at this from the perspective of the sovereignty of God, right? That God chooses where that river is going to flow, what it's going to make alive, and what it's not going to make alive. And that's certainly a truth that we have in Scripture. The congregation, we look at it this morning from the perspective of responsibility that men and women have to believe and to take hold of the salvation that God calls us to. Do you remember what it said in Hebrews? In Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 4 it says, For indeed, Hebrews 4 and verse 2, For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith, or was not mixed with faith in those who heard. Do you see that congregation? What the author of Hebrews is saying there is that that river of life was flowing. You see, now it's focusing on man's responsibility to embrace those benefits. That God calls us to have faith in the offered salvation that is given us. And these marshes and swamps now represent that area that was never healed by God. Because they did not mix faith with the salvation that God called them to do. And that is such a lesson for us also this morning, congregation, because there could be people also in our midst. And as the water of life flows in this church, and it surely flows here, congregation. But it doesn't go good. It flows past you. It does not touch you. It does not heal you. If you do not mix faith with the word that is heard. That is our responsibility. And when I look at those swamps and marshes and I see them still in their salty, dead, barren condition, then it reflects also on us congregation. That, that water of life can come so close to us. They can come so close to us and yet miss us. If we do not reach forth the empty hand of faith to take hold of it. And that's why when Jesus Christ came into this world, his message was almost always the same. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Without faith, congregation, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to be joined to Jesus Christ. Without faith, it is impossible for that river to flow into us. And that's what I call you, congregation, to avoid self-examination here this morning. Are you a believer? Have you mixed faith with the river of water that comes in this church this morning? 
Otherwise, that river flows past you. Children and young people, I ask you, after all the Sunday school and catechism classes that you may have received, all the instruction given in Christian schools, reading the scripture with your parents, is that river of water still flowing past you? Or have you reached out with your empty hand? Say, Lord, I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to place upon the table. But I know I need that water. I know I need that spirit in my heart. Oh God, please flow into my dead area, into my dead sea, and make new life to abound in this dead heart of mine. That's the prayer of faith, congregation. And God says that when we believe, when we look to Him, He will never turn away from us. So, the lessons of the marshes and swamps that stayed salty. And then my fourth application, congregation, our response to this. Now, in the first place, I've already covered that, right? That our response should be faith. But as the people of God this morning, and I trust congregation, that for many years already, that river's been flowing into this church. It's been flowing into our hearts. I trust that we're Christians today, that we are believers. And so now the question comes to us, congregation, what is flowing out of this church? You remember that we had a, a sermon, or we had the, the picture set before us of that beautiful glory cloud that came and descended upon the house of God. And to Ezekiel's joy and gladness, he saw that glory cloud, and he knew that it represented the presence of the Spirit of God himself. And he rejoiced to see it. He knew that the building was just an empty brick and stone structure until the Spirit of God came in. But now he sees something else, congregation. And now it's time for us to ask that question. What is flowing out of this temple? What is flowing out of this church? It, well, let me ask you in the first place, congregation, is there anything in this church that is worth flowing out to the healing of the people around us? Now, of course, it's a rhetorical question. We have gold. We have the greatest treasure that ever a person can have. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the Spirit of God. The congregation now is time for an open, frank, and honest assessment. What flows forth from this church? Does the gospel flow out of this building? It's one thing to talk about the Spirit of God being in this building, and that's where we need to start. No question about that. But now there's another point of self-examination for us as the people of God. What flows out of this church? Is there water trickling? Is there ankle-deep water? Is there knee-deep water? What's flowing out of the doors of this building? Into the deadest areas of this area? Into the deadest areas of Kalamazoo and Portage and the regions beyond? There's deadness in their congregation. You know that. Serious deadness. We know that. Is there water flowing? Again, we have our own responsibility now. You know that God calls us in the New Testament to be fellow workers with Him. Maybe our response should be, well, I'll just take a seat here in this chair and wait for God to start. No. That would be very God-dishonoring, wouldn't it? That is, a, that is a, a terrible reproach upon the name of God to say, well, then I guess we'll just wait for the water to start flowing. No. God calls us to gird up our hearts, to roll up our sleeves, and to be busy in the work of the kingdom of God. That means we need to see the world out there, congregation, as dead, as a dead sea. And we need to see the Spirit of God and the gospel that we treasure as water of life that flows into the wounded hearts, into the broken homes, into the gospel missions, into the prisons, 
into the hospitals and what other places? Where do you work? There's deadness. You don't even have to tell me where you work. I know that already. There's deadness in those places. Does the river of God flow from this place, not just downhill, but does it flow with a purpose to those areas? And, and children and young people, I'd ask you that when you go to school or when you go to your places where you meet other people and you see in, in that school, right? You see areas of deadness in the school. You see people who need help. You see a, a tear in a person's eye. You see that person who's maybe mocked and scoffed at by all the rest. Maybe over here you see a person who's not very friendly, frankly, and you would just soon steer around him and not have anything to do with him or her. What congregation? Dear children? Dear young people? The water of God flows to those places. It flowed to your heart. Your heart was as dead as anybody's. Now it's time for that water of God to flow out of you, out of your heart. And so I challenge you today, you look at, you see your friends, you see your colleagues in school, find the dead areas and let the water of God flow there. Encourage that person. Speak to that person. Try to get influence for good. Why can't there be peer pressure in a positive direction? Is that possible? Of course it's possible. When the Spirit of God is within us, we can begin to be a force for good in our schools, in our clubs, Whatever, whatever institutions or agencies we're part of. That should be our response. Let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall leave if we faint not, says the Apostle Paul. For young and for old, no one here graduates from that kind of kingdom work. The congregation is the last place, the fifth Application, a new creation. I wonder, dear friends, if any of these words sound familiar to you from another place of Scripture. In verse 12, we read of the trees on both sides of the bank of the river. They grow all kinds of fruit. Their leaves will not wither. Their fruit will not fail. They bear fruit every month. Their leaves are for the healing. You've read that before, haven't you? Because that's just a picture of congregation of what God will bring in the last day. When he brings in a new heaven and a new earth. And in Revelation 22, we read about another water of life, a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. There will no longer be any curse. Congregation, what do you think about that river and that place, that beautiful place where the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nation, where the fruit is always abundant. There's no more swamps or marshes, no more desolate, barren areas left. It's all been made new. God says, and behold, I make all things new. That is the hope for the people of God. That is the hope for those who have put their trust in the gospel of Christ. What a future that is, dear friends. Whether you're young this morning or whether you're very old, this is the future. 
of all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ. We see so much imperfection, don't we? In our own hearts, in our churches, in our world. We see so much deadness. We talked last time about bad shepherds. The time before that, we were talking about um, the bad and the false prophets. Congregation, this river makes everything new and makes everything alive. And the day will come when it will make everything perfect within and without. To the glory of God's great name. May that bring a prayer in our hearts to your congregation. Come, Lord Jesus. Yea, come. Amen. Almighty and merciful God, how we long that that river would flow in our churches, in our own hearts, in our neighborhoods, in our hospitals and clinics and prisons, in the mission agencies in, in, in this area, and in many areas. How we wish it would flow with Ukraine and Russia. How we wish it would flow all over the length and breadth of this earth. Oh, that the knowledge of your name would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Lord, as we've seen this river help us to be honest with ourselves too, and as a church to consider what water flows out of this building, out of this, out of this church, Lord, which you have called out of this world and called to yourself. Lord, we confess that we have the gospel. We have a great treasure. We have this pearl of great price. Lord, how many pearls flow out of this building? How much water flows out of this building? Now, Lord, we think with some regret and guilt that we have not served you and carried forth this blessed gospel treasure, this water, to every area where we might come to contact. Oh God, strengthen us in this ministry. Give us courage. Give us new strength. Give us words to speak. May our tongue be as the pen of a ready writer. We pray, O oh Lord, that your kingdom would come in this city to the glory of your name and the upbuilding of your people, and the saving of many lost souls, the conversion of deadness to life. O Spirit of God, be poured out upon this area, and may that water flow, and may it be to your glory and to your honor. And all these things we ask in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.